Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. And we have been um, looking at an ever-increasing list of things we think are really important and basic to the Christian faith in our series called Christianity 101. We've started from the most broad, like who or what is God, to what is faith and what's the Bible all about. We began to stick our toes in the water of who Jesus is and why he's of particular importance. Where are we going today, Sarah? So our cliffhanger from last week was the question, what does it mean that Jesus saves? And we decided that this needed to be its own episode because it's a rather big topic, right? That Jesus somehow saves us, but then that begs the question of, well, saves us from what? Like, why did Jesus save us? And what do we do now that we are somehow saved like how does that impact the rest of our lives um so yeah i think in particular for me that this stems from jesus's betrayal arrest and then crucifixion and then three days later the tomb was empty and he was resurrected like for me that is the at least the basic starting point of jesus saves that this historical event somehow changes all of us. It it seems pretty clear that early on the Christian community was convinced that Jesus was important, not just as new teacher or giver of new rules, but that somehow whatever it is that Jesus does and is, is about saving or rescuing or delivering or something. And even the gospel writers make a point that the name Jesus itself means God or Yahweh saves. So, okay, clearly is at the heart of who Jesus is that maybe makes him different from, uh, you know, one of the prophets or Moses who are famous for saying stuff, that it's it's what Jesus does. And it also seems that the early church pretty quickly centered that on, like, as you say, Sarah, the cross and resurrection, right? That even when we go back to the creeds, like those ancient, ancient summaries of faith, we skip over the teaching of Jesus, the disciples, the miracles, and we get he was born, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and died and rose again. Um, and even if we might want to say, boy, I'm glad we also have his miracles or teachings or whatever, um, that pretty quickly the early church centered whatever it means to call Jesus Savior has something to do with the cross, or maybe that the cross helps us interpret everything else that Jesus says and does, that all of that can be part of how Jesus saves, but it's it's incomplete without the cross and resurrection. We should probably not to muddy the waters, but I'm going to muddy the waters. Um, Note that even the idea of Jesus as one who saves is maybe a broader term than we're used to immediately thinking. Sometimes in church circles, we immediately go to, okay, Jesus saves. That means he saves me from going to a bad place after I die called hell. And that it's primarily about your spiritual post-mortem geography. Um, But the word that gets translated saves is the same word you'd use for healing like a disease. So like when somebody is cured of an illness, Jesus will say, go in faith. Your faith has made you well, healed you, saved you. It's the same word in the Greek. And that the idea of savior has that sense of rescue, um, of delivering, of healing, of I was in danger and now I'm not. So that might include 
after death, but Jesus seems to have this broader, bigger sense of what it means to be savior or how or what Jesus saves us from, as well as what Jesus saves us for. And and I really like that the word saved and healing are the same word, Um, primarily because I also really like that sin like the concept of sin, like capital S sin seems to be treated almost the same way as disease in Mm -hmm. some of the scripture, right? right? That it's not something that we can avoid. Like in a lot of ways you can't avoid getting sick in some ways you can, like by all means, wash your hands, (laughs) cover your mouth when you cough. Keep your mask. Um, wear your mask. Get vaccinated. When you can get vaccinated. You can avoid certain kinds of disease, mm-hmm. but in other ways, you can't. Right? Yeah. Like if you have a small child and the, your small child gets a cold, you can almost guarantee that you're going to also get a cold because you can't teach a three-month-old to not sneeze in your eyeball. You can't do it. And in the same way, you can't really avoid all sin. You mm-hmm. can't avoid some, like by all means, if you feel the impulse to kill somebody, remember the commandment, do not murder <laughs> and do not kill that person. But at the same time, like that sin, like disease often sucks us in when we least expect it. So that before you know it, you're in the midst of sin without meaning to. Yeah. So I like that connection of sin and disease and healing and salvation all being kind of, you know, intertwined. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly, in the I'm thinking in that passage in Matthew where the name of Jesus is sort of announced, the angel says, you're gonna name your child Jesus because he will save his people from their sins is the answer that, that like, if, if we're going to ask, what are we saved from even the Bible itself speaks in a couple of different ways that are maybe overlapping, but so it's saved from sin, from being trapped in it, from the consequences of it, from death. Sure. Saved from hell. Sure. Saved from the powers of evil, saved from enslavement to wickedness. I mean, like there's all sorts of ways the Bible talks about what Jesus saves us from, um, that that are it's not one or the other but these are these are all part of the answer i guess and i would even suggest that the the new testament and and maybe to some degree the old testament as well would also ask us the question can we also say that god saves us for something like when i think Mm -hmm. about the, the 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 great story of of rescue and delivery and salvation in the hebrew scriptures the central story is the exodus right freed from enslavement under pharaoh's egypt freed from slavery for what not to do it all over again but a new way of of living right this this freedom in a new kind of community a new kind of life where you don't slide back into that same old let's kill each other and oppress each other and enslave people that it's a leaving one thing behind not just to go do whatever you want but for a different way of 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 life you're freed from one thing and freed for something and i think that the scriptures kind of talk in the same way about being saved um that whatever it means to be saved is taken out of a dead end or healed from a disease and then intended for something good, life-giving and fully alive. Almost like I'm, I'm, I think of that one story where Jesus um, 
uh, cast the, the whole legion of demons out of the one guy who's living in the cemetery naked with chains and sends them into the herd of pigs, you know? And at the end of the story, the guy wants to go follow Jesus. And his answer back is, no, go live your life. Like, go back to your family. Mm-hmm. You get your life back. Like, this, you're, you're meant to be free for a purpose. You can get to be alive again now. Um, and th- that seems an important piece of it. That Jesus saves us for something as well, for a new kind of life, a new kind of community. And often when I think of like passages in the Old Testament or in the, in the New Testament, rather in the epistles that talk about Jesus has saved us or rescued us, it's often has transferred us from this old way of life so that now we can be people who live for love. You've been freed for the ability to love your neighbor now. You've been freed for a new kind of life um, that makes you more fully alive than you were before. I think of when I think of being saved for something, I think of that passage from Jesus about, you know, to become perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that comes from the, the Wesleyan in me and the idea of um, sanctifying grace. Mm-hmm. You know, we justification in our big church terms is, is salvation. It, it's saving grace. But then after we are saved, we are to go on towards perfection. We are to go on to become more and more Christ-like with every moment of every day of our lives. And so I think that's part, at least part for me, what it means to be saved for. We're saved from sin and all the consequences, everything that goes with sin. But then our goal is to become more like Christ since because we have been saved. I, I think of that detail at the end of the Zacchaeus story, right? So Jesus goes to Zacchaeus's house, invites himself over, sort of takes the initiative and says, I'm going to your house, Zacchaeus. Um, and as a result of being met with this kind of love, Zacchaeus goes, and now I'm going to quit cheating people. I'm going to give back. And I'm going to make reparations and give back, you know, four times over what I've cheated. And I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor. And the conclusion Jesus goes, is, ah, today salvation has come to this house, almost as if to say, I'm not just here to save you from the stigma of uh, the way nobody wants to play with you because you're a tax collector, but that you become this new kind of person. Jesus' love initiates it without Zacchaeus even thinking he's worthy. That seems important to me. But also the, the idea is that moves all the way toward being a new kind of person who doesn't cheat anymore, but can love neighbor. To, to me, that response to salvation has always been important. Um, so I grew up mostly Southern Baptist. Like I was never formally a Southern Baptist myself, but that's where my religious upbringing was. Um, and and for Southern Baptists, it's very much, they don't, they don't use the language. You have to earn your salvation, but you do have to do something to be saved. Like Uh you have to, you have to believe and you have to ask for it right like those are the two like actions that you have to do and then you you kind of demonstrate that you've been saved by then how you live the rest of your life and if you stop behaving that certain way you are backsliding and you have to kind of start over and you have to like ask Mm. and you have to believe um and it's kind of like an endless cycle the way I viewed it. And granted, this is from the perspective of me being a young girl and then feeling like I was never measuring up. So then when my family joined the Lutheran church, um, that the idea that salvation is God's grace of something given to you 
was such a relief and framing it in that, yeah, salvation should change you. It's a reason, but it's a response. Like, what are you going to do now that you are saved? And what I'm going to do is often the things that the Southern Baptist church just kind of expected to see automatically transformed in my life. But Mm -hmm. for me, it's more of a process of I'm going to care and love others because that's what God does. And I want to demonstrate God's love to the world by doing what God does. Kind of what like Erica was saying, where you're trying to become more Christ-like, like Mm -hmm. I'm trying to follow Christ because Christ has given me this gift. Yeah. Um, so yeah, to me, it is, you, you should, you should have a response. You shouldn't just ignore the gift given to you. And that response is by trying to follow Christ as best you can. I'm so glad though, that you mentioned that the way that can get, um, I guess I would say skewed and make it sound like it's your ongoing moral progress that makes you count as saved. I mean, whether anybody means it that way, man, that sure can come across that way. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the words you used a minute ago, Erica, are helpful in making that distinction, even though this might sound like we're getting into the jargon of beyond a Christianity 101. There's reasons why classically Christians have talked about God justifying us, making us in right relationship or something like that. And that that's this thing that is unearned that here's this gift that God gives And that there's a reason we put almost like a dotted line between that and then this other reality that sometimes we call sanctification or being made holy or being more like Jesus. And that if you're going to hang, where can I have confidence about whatever it means to be saved, that I'm saved? The emphasis seems to be, at least in in Protestant traditions, on it's it's God who's who's done the justifying. At that point, you can say you you can rest in that. and that the sanctifying has to be a separate step. Otherwise, it sounds like we're saving ourselves. Um, and when we lose sight of that, we end up sounding like, like just like you said, Sarah, like, well, yeah, salvation is a gift, but you have to have done these things to get in. And then you have to do these things to maintain your membership or else you're not really in the club. Um, and that it, it seems important to say this is God who's doing the rescuing, not us applying for uh, a membership in a club. And even, um, and I don't, I don't know what the Lutheran stance on this, but even for us as Wesleyan, sanctification isn't something that we do on our own. Right. Oh yeah. Lutherans you know, are totally it, there. <laughs> you know, it, again, it's, it's something that we can only do with the help of God. That's why it's called sanctifying grace, right. not just sanctification, you know, like any good works that I do now that I have been saved, I do because it's Jesus working through me. Yeah. Not because, oh, I'm saved. So now all of a sudden I'm a good person. Right, right, right. You know, this is Jesus and the spirit working through me to help me, to give me those eyes to see, those ears to hear, you know, those hands and feet to reach out and help others and to do what is right. Um, Because left up to my own devices, I probably wouldn't, you know, using the the, um, Paul's, you know, I don't do the things that I need that I know I should do. And I do do the things I know I shouldn't do kind of deal. That's how I, that's my understanding of sanctification is it's all God helping us to do those things that we know that we should do, Yeah, but can't on our own. Yeah. 
there's a line of uh the the late theologian robert for our capons that keeps coming back to me um and that every time i get to focus on how how well are we improving in our you know moral conduct i i keep hearing these words of capons in the back of my mind and he says something like Jesus didn't come to reform the reformable to teach the teachable. He came to raise the dead. Um, And that notion of like that the Christian faith isn't primarily about moral self-help, that if you follow the teachings of Jesus well enough, you earn a gold star and get into the afterlife, but more that it's about we're dead and Jesus raises us from the dead. Um, And that, as long as I can keep that in my mind, that keeps God in the driver's seat as the one who gives, who acts, who saves, who rescues rather than God saying, I've got this standard. If you live up to it, I'll let you into heaven. Mm-hmm. To me then that also, I mean, that, that, that gets at maybe the, the, what it means to be saved is in some sense, in every dimension of our life, the things that are dead to be made fully alive. So that means whether it's the threat of literal death, that there's this promise of life beyond death, sure. And then also in all the ways that we settle for le- less than full life with one another, that Jesus is a, is in the business of, so to speak, making us fully alive. So that like, in, in a sense, I know you said at the beginning, Sarah, that like Jesus as savior is centered on the cross. In another sense, I guess I'd say every time Jesus heal somebody, you know, in the gospels of their sickness or include somebody who'd been made um, ostracized or outcast or announces forgiveness on somebody. Those are all part of what it looks like uh, to be made more fully alive and part of what salvation looks like. Um, it's not just, it's, it's not just that Jesus, I can only wait till you're dying. And then my, my saving power is I bring you back to life, but it's all the places that we are less than fully alive that Jesus brings us more fully to life. Oh yeah. And I would agree with that. Some of my favorite healing stories are the one where Jesus restores the person. I think, as you said earlier, back to their either former life or back to a new life, Mm -hmm. um, you know, depending on who, who, what their circumstances are. Right. Um, But yeah, there's always that great moment at the end of the healing where it's like, no, go home, go show yourself to the priest, go hug your family. Um, you have been restored back to your community, back to your family, back to yourself, back to good health. Um, and likewise, we are also restored. So then let me float out this idea. I'm going to put this in the category of one of those half-formed thoughts that might turn out to be heresy. So maybe get your rocks ready in case you need to stone me. <laughs> um, but let me float this out then as a thought experiment. Um, maybe then in a sense, like, All of what Jesus ever does, culminating in the cross and resurrection, but everything Jesus does is about saving in a sense, and what or it's all of one piece, I guess. And what 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 I mean by that is sometimes I've heard well-meaning, respectable religious people sort of compartmentalize Jesus. There's Jesus the teacher; he teaches us things we're supposed to do. There's Jesus the healer; he would heal people only of their physical ailments, so that's not very important because we're spiritual people. And then Jesus dies on the cross because that's the most important thing. And, and then you believe these correct facts about what happened when Jesus died, and then that's how you get into the postmortem club of the after. Like that, we sort of compartmentalize Jesus. 
but I'm not sure Jesus sees what he does that way. I think Jesus sort of sees like I'm surprised and then maybe not surprised anymore when I come across those places in the gospels where he'll say Jesus saw the crowds and they were like sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion on them. So he taught them like that. His, his first thought is these people are people who need teaching. And then other times he sees people in need and goes, what these people in need is healing. And what these people in need is being raised from the dead. Um, that like that, that notion that, um, everything Jesus does is in some sense that 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 same impulse to bring people to life. It's just people come with different needs and whatever the need is, Jesus is about that life giving that in, in some sense saving um, so that, yeah, it's the cross and resurrection, but also every time Jesus eats uh, at a, a tax collector's house or um, says to somebody, their sins are forgiven, saving is happening there as well. That These are not dis- distinct separable things, but they're all in a sense, the the same scene from different angles, maybe. Is that heretical? Are you getting ready to throw rocks? <laughs> I don't think it's I don't think it's heretical. I think it's I think it's the difference between trees and the forest. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it is one of those things that you can focus on individual trees, but it's all part of the forest. It's all yeah. part of the same narrative. It's still the same, like as you said, it's the this is how Jesus saves. Like, yeah, I think it's trees and forests. Okay. Oh, and Steve, like you mentioned, you know, eating at the table, eating with tax collectors and stuff. Um, one of the practices of my denomination, my faith tradition, is that we practice what's called an open table for communion, um, where anybody can come and partake. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to be a member of the church. You don't have to. You don't even have to have a faith in Jesus Christ to come and partake in the table, and we we believe that we trust that because we believe that salvation can be found at the table. Um, you know, it, it's, I, I've heard like that Susanna Wesley, John and Charles's mother was saved at the communion table. I know a story of a seminary um, classmate whose sister, uh, they were raised, I think in a, in a Hindu, not maybe a Hindu, but maybe um, one of the Eastern religion and um she came to her sister's graduation partook in in the sacrament of holy communion and became saved um so i I think what you were saying about you know like salvation is not just about sin but it's about like that wholeness and that healing of everything including sitting at the table with other people for me in the wesleyan perspective yeah i get that completely that that the, the way you were describing it also raises another set of questions that I think we at least need to give a nod to. And you talked about uh, Susanna Wesley coming to the table of communion and in that moment getting saved. And that's a question that maybe that a lot of Christian folks or even mm-hmm. folks who stand on the outside wonder, like, what does that mean? And is this thing being saved? Is it a moment in my lifetime? Is it a moment 2000 years ago? Is it an ongoing process? Is it all the above? Um, because we, we should probably be clear. There are Christian groups that treat the question, when did you get saved yeah. as a, can you point to the moment in your life when you did X or Y or Z to, and, you know, it, did I pray the sinner's prayer? Did I get baptized? Did I do the right thing to accept Jesus in my life? And sometimes that's what people mean by that's the point when you got saved. Um, others would say, and I, I've heard this from a number of other Lutheran colleagues as well, that they answer the question, when did you get saved as 2000 years ago on a borrowed Roman cross? Um, that it's, it's this event that Jesus has accomplished and that the, the, when of it is an already accomplished fact in what Jesus does. And 
we also got to be honest, there are places in the New Testament that talk about salvation as a future reality, that we will be saved, those who shall be saved, as though it's this sort of future judgment or new creation that is the moment when being saved happens. How, how, how do we talk about that, the when of it? All of I the think, above. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to depend entirely on your tradition. Yeah. Right? Like, and I don't necessarily know if there are any that are wrong. Like, again, I grew up in a very Southern Baptist tradition. So if a Southern Baptist asked me, when were you saved? I can point to a time when I was 10 years old and I was playing on um, the steps in my grandma's house. And all of a sudden it was like, I can't remember if I ever asked God to save me. So I stopped playing for a minute, prayed that little prayer that I think I was taught at some point of like, hey, God, save me, please. (laughs) Amen. And then I went back to playing. But like, for me, that was like, Uh as a Southern Baptist kid, that was the moment I was saved. Mm -hmm. But then a year later, I was baptized in the Lutheran tradition. And I'm very much, yeah, Jesus saved me 2000 years ago on the cross when Jesus chose to die for me, and for you, and for all of us. Mm -hmm. Um, But yet, at the same time, I fully understand and am thankful that on the last day, when we stand before God in judgment, that Jesus will save us then. (laughs) Yeah, these are mine. They're they're cool. They're cool. You're with me. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Uh, So yeah, I think it's, it's all of it. But depending on the tradition that you are living in, I think your answer might be different. Okay. I think that's important. That, and this is one of those places where we can uplift that while maybe universally Christians across time have used the language of Jesus saves, we we mean different things or talk talk about that in different ways, even in an individual person's mm-hmm. life. What what does that mean? And there, there are differences of ways we would talk about that. Yeah, I can't pinpoint a day at a time, like kind of like what you were saying, Sarah. Um, but when people ask me, like, you know, when you get to heaven, you know, and God says, why should I let you in? Um, because of a cross 2000 years ago. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, Like, um, yeah, so yeah, I, that's why I say all, all of them, you know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I don't know how true that is to, to Wesleyanism and, and John's understanding uh, of things, but it works for me. So. <laughs> right, right, right. So I guess like when, when, when you use that phrase a little bit ago about Susanna Wesley getting saved at the communion rail, it sounds like she had an experience at that moment where she sort of responded back and said, yes, I want this, mm-hmm. or yes, I want to be a part of this. Um, uh, but in some sense, it's a recognition of what God's already done that has brought about this, you know, that, that makes the meal of communion mean something that if, if you, yeah. Uh, I mean, like it, it's significant that it wasn't just that like a, a taco night that she got. I mean, like, oh, it's at this particular meal where at, with these gifts at the bread and the cup. Oh, this is what Jesus has done for me. That, you know, brings her to a certain faith um, that it's it, in a sense, it's all it's tied to that recognition of what God has already done. It's like John's strangely heart, strangely war moment um, right. at Aldersgate. Right. I'm, I'm sure John Wesley had experienced salvation before Aldersgate. He was an ordained priest in the, in the Anglican church. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would certainly hope that he had experienced salvation before that moment. But in that moment, he heard something in Luther's yeah. preface to the book of Romans that 
just connected with him in a way yeah. that hadn't before. Yeah. Yeah. And so if, if you were to ask John Wesley when he was saved, you know, I, I would guess that if you were to put a date on it, it would be that Aldersgate date, that May date. You know, I, I'm going to put a pin slightly in this conversation because I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, we're talking about communion and baptism and stuff in relation to salvation. And so I think we need to have a conversation on the sacraments. Yeah, because sounds like not all Christians have sacraments. And those denominations that do have sacraments have different numbers of sacraments. And I think for Christianity one on 101, like if you're a brand new person exploring the Christian faith, sacraments are weird yeah so i think we need to explore those a little bit more yeah 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 good so okay so maybe as far as how far we can go in a christianity 101 level the idea of being saved has this sense of rescue that is sure includes this life is also life beyond death and maybe all the places in us that are broken all of them getting healed Mm -hmm. um and that it's central centralized maybe in what Jesus has done for us in the cross, we might be able to point to points in our life where it became real for us, or it, it dawned on us what, what God has done. And we say, yes, I want this. Um, but that it's, it, it's fundamentally about God's action, doing the saving. Um, and we, the ones who get to receive this gift, we who are rescued, not us doing something to save ourselves. So if it's like uh, Capon's line about Jesus raising the dead, it's Jesus who calls Lazarus back to life from the grave. And all Lazarus can do is go, man, I'm alive again. I better get out of this tomb. Um, that it, it, at no point does Lazarus think this is his accomplishment. It's, he's been given this new life. Um, and all, it, it only makes sense for him to step out of the grave. Then that maybe that's what the, the life of being saved is. It's finding that Jesus has called your name and awakened you out of death into something new and alive again. But we definitely have a course charted for future conversations. So we do invite you to join us for the ever-increasing list of things we'd put on Christianity 101 here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye. Bye.